Welcome to Bach Lab, the podcast by Emanuel Music, the living laboratory for the music of J.S. Bach. I'm Claudia Dorian, and I'm so delighted to be having these conversations and sharing them with you. In this very first episode of Bach Lab, I'm joined by Ryan Turner, Artistic Director of Emanuel Music. We touch on a variety of topics from the core of our organization and its founding to the Emanuel Music approach to Bach and what makes this music so special. Ryan also shares a bit about our upcoming season and the many concerts to look forward to. Hopefully, this episode provides some context for where we're coming from as we dive into this podcast and explore Bach with the many passionate voices at Emanuel Music. Hi, Claudia. Nice to be here. Yeah, this is really exciting. Um, could you give us like a brief introduction on kind of your journey and your path with Emanuel Music? Sure. I began at Emanuel Music way back in 1997. I just graduated from the Boston Conservatory, getting my master's and was hired to be a tenor in the ensemble and a tenor soloist. So mm -hmm. I sang here and worked with our founder, Craig Smith, um, for 10 years until his passing in 2007 and then continued on as a soloist, a member of the ensemble until I was hired in 2010 as the artistic director. So I had the privilege of working with Craig Smith and John Harbison and Michael Beatty and feel like I uh, sort of grew up in a way as a musician in the ensemble. Um, also got to work with Craig outside of Emanuel Music in the summer opera company that he started called Opera Aperta, mm -hmm. and I sang the role of Ferrando in uh, Mozart's Così Fan Tutte. And that was one of those um, galvanizing experiences where I got to spend every day with Craig for six weeks and, uh, and with Drew Minter and all these Emmanuel, Pam DeLaw was involved, David Kravitz, all these Emmanuel folks, and just sort of embed myself in this culture. Um, so I, I feel really really fortunate that that was sort of my, um, I don't know, my musical indoctrination, as it were, coming out of grad school. Yeah. Um, and then, meanwhile, I was doing my own conducting, conducting some college stuff, doing some community choirs, and um, Craig asked me in, gosh, I think it was 2004, if I would want to guest conduct a cantata. Mm which was, you know, sort of at the time seemed like a dream. And uh, so he asked me to conduct. It went well. And then every year from then on, he asked me to conduct at least once, if not twice. So when the search process came around, a lot of musicians and some of my mentors encouraged me to apply for the job. So flash forward to 2010, I got appointed artistic director. And now I've been artistic director here for... 12 years. Wow. We've already gone deep into talking about Craig and his impact. Can you speak <laughs> a little bit on him and the founding of this organization? Yeah, you know, Craig was a, I mean, I obviously I met Craig in 97, not yeah. early on when he began the organization. It was 1970 mm. that Craig did the first cantata, December 6th, 1970, cantata 151. Mm. Uh, a Christmas cantata, yeah, and uh, with incidentally, our principal oboist, who is still our principal oboist, Peggy Pearson, yeah. played the first cantata. John Harbison 
our principal guest conductor played it. His wife, Rosemary Harbison, played in the first cantata. Um, and these are people still intimately and, you know, completely involved in the organization. Um, Craig had this crazy vision that why not do a cantata every why not? He had why this. Why not? Yeah. yeah. Well, and the other thing about Craig is that he had this idea that the only way you got to know a composer is to have a sort of encyclopedic, exhaustive knowledge of the composer. Um, and even the, the chamber series he did, he would like take, we're going to do Schubert for seven all years. the seven years of Schubert. <laughs> we're going to learn every, he is one of only two people I've ever known that knew every single Schubert song. And could play and sing them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so his approach was one that was, again, complete immersion. Yeah. And specifically complete immersion in the text, mm. which is sort of what drew me to this place, is this idea of the text as your guide. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, getting to work with him was great and learning his approach to music making and the other thing that I will say Craig handed down to me whether he knew it or not was the collaborative approach as a mm. conductor ah. not top down but a collaborative approach and the idea which I never was able to put into words until I don't know maybe 10 years ago when I kind of figured out this is what Craig did is that he enabled the artistry around him Mm. his job was to bring the best out in other people and it was the collaborative way and it's the way we still I try to approach things here at Emmanuel that yeah. yeah I might be the guy in front of the ensemble waving my arms but it's the collective artistry and the years of experience that mm -hmm. everybody brings to what we do that makes it so rich and inspiring and interesting yeah we're already hitting at some things that I have observed and read about what makes Emmanuel special of this like really living with the music week after week and experiencing it in this unique approach of familiarity I've heard you talk about. Um, and then also of the, the people hmm. around here are such a big impact and, you know, have lived with the music and share that. Um, and then, like you said, kind of, facilitating rather than telling you know mm -hmm. is something even with the administrative staff i've noticed is really powerful here mm -hmm. well one of the things about the fact that we do a bach cantata every week from september to may for 36 weeks of the year in some ways we have more contact and rehearsal time as an ensemble than other than maybe the BSO in town. Yeah. And so these are people that, they're not just colleagues. These are sort of artistic friends. Mm -hmm. And and also as a conductor, when you recognize, okay, these are people that I've, I get to work with on a weekly basis. And the top-down approach could never work. Yeah. And... The remuneration that players and singers get is not on the level of the BSO. This is a labor of love for people. These are people that so um, assiduously aspire to understand the music of Bach that they want to have 
what I call the weekly dialogue yeah. with Bach. And that when we look at the cantata repertoire, especially, is, and I've talked about this before with a number of people, the idea that the cantatas, when Bach was writing cantatas, he was sort of emancipated from the idea of a paying audience. Mm. He was writing for a congregation that was had no place else to be, <laughs> right? The captive audience. Captive audience, 18th century Saxony. Lutheran service was three to four hours. There were no other distractions. There were no other place to go. Mm-hmm. And he, this was his, his laboratory. He was working out things um, from a musical, theological text perspective. Yeah. And you can see that, you know, now that I've, I'm one short of conducting all 200 of the cantatas. Oh, goodness. And so, you know, and I think back to Craig and his sort of exhaustive approach that he'd always say, you don't know a composer till you know all of a composer's works. Mm-hmm. And I can, I'm, I've learned so much about when you look at the difference between early Bach to the Bach in Leipzig to what did he do after, you know, when he was done focusing on cantatas and he was doing other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but this idea of a weekly dialogue with a composer who wasn't pandering to a paying audience or an audience that was going to give applause or yeah. write a review. Yeah. Um, and to me, that's one of the great things also about doing this music in the context in which it was intended. Yeah. That... I love the fact that there's no applause when we're done, mm. that the music still lives in that space uninterrupted yeah. by another sound in a way. Absolutely. It's a different experience than a concert. Oh, completely. Um, and what you were saying about we're in this weekly dialogue, you could even say Bach was you know, in this weekly dialogue with the text. And, you know, well, and also he was in this weekly dialogue with who, who were the people he had in front of him. Mm. Especially in those first three years in Leipzig when he was writing one cantata a week. Yeah. Or sometimes more than one. And he had to write the piece, produce the parts, rehearse it. They had to, the soloists and chorus and orchestra had to learn it all within a week time span. And he had to think about who, what, what is my personnel? Who do I have this week? What is possible? Yeah, that's why you get all the different instrumentation and all of that. Well, and he was also exploring. I mean, True. he loved to push the envelope with instrumentations. I mean, he sort of introduced the idea of the oboe da caccia, or what we now call the English horn, to uh, to the people of Saxony. Mm-hmm. Even the oboe da more was one of the first instruments he introduced to the people of Saxony. That was a, without getting in the weeds, that was a, the Demore was something that was happening in Dresden, in the big in the big city. Ah. Not in Saxony. And yeah. so he, that was something he introduced. He was always pushing the limits of instrumentation in his weekly sort of, where where are the hard edges? How far can I go? Yeah. Um, you know, you're mentioning the cantata's place in this service, in this, um, you know, three-hour captive audience. <laughs> um, we do it a little differently at Emmanuel Music, but I think part of the vision is retaining some of that. Can you talk a little bit about the cantatas in our service? Sure. Um, there's a lot to say about this. <laughs> Bear with me. In 18th century Leipzig, when Bach was doing cantatas, the cantata would happen either right after the sermon, or if it was a two-part cantata, there would be part one of the cantata, there'd be the sermon, 
and then part two of the cantata. Mm -hmm. So in its most sort of basic terms, it was a musical sermon or a, music, a musical meditation upon the readings of the day. Yeah. I talked a little bit about this with Pam too. Yeah. yeah. And so we, there was, we don't do that this way at Emmanuel. And there, there are simple practical reasons. Um, we actually use time during the service for the orchestra and soloist to rehearse again upstairs in the music room. Mm -hmm. So if we were to do it right after the sermon, that would cut out a big chunk of our extra rehearsal time. And given the fact that we have essentially two hours of rehearsal in totality, if that, yeah. we can't afford to lose any more time. Um, one of the big challenges is the fact that, of course, Bach was working with, in the Lutheran church, with a lectionary cycle of readings that repeated every year. Mm -hmm. Same readings every Sunday, um, and then it'll repeat again the second year, third year. In the our modern Episcopal church, we follow the RCL, which is the Revised Common Lectionary, and it's a three-year cycle of reading. So we have year A, year B, year C. Mm. And these, this three-year cycle of readings doesn't necessarily line up with the Sunday for which Bach designated a cantata. Yes. Plus, we only do cantatas September to May. Mm -hmm. And he was writing cantatas for the entire year. So one of the things that I have to do in working with our rector, Pam Wertz, is figuring out a way that the cantatas can be in dialogue with the readings, yeah. if it's not a, necessarily a direct hit or quote, but somehow that they're, they're in dialogue and then the motets we choose so that the whole service is connected in some way. Yeah. And I will say that Pam Wertz, our rector, who is... Um, sort of a dream collaborator as well. Regardless of how big of a stretch the cantata connection is, she finds a way to make those connections. Yeah. So we work together really well, and I'm very grateful for her. You know, she's a musician herself. She was an organist who studied Bach. She gets it. Can we talk a little bit about, like, how this collaboration with the church functions and how it came to be, these motets, the cantatas? Hmm. Yeah, so it was, like I said, the first cantata was 1970, and it was an experiment. Craig thought, oh, I'm going to get some of my friends from the New England Conservatory, people I know, let's do a cantata. Mm -hmm. And then they did it again, and then it sort of, after a while, caught on, like, oh, we should try this every week. Yeah. And it caught on. Um, so this is something that I, you know, obviously was part of as a singer, but then inherited as the artistic director. Mm -hmm. Um Emmanuel Music has been the ensemble in residence at Emmanuel Church for as long as I can remember. I mean, some people say that it was from it since 1970. Uh, and we've, with rare exception, had rectors and a community of, <clears throat> excuse me, parishioners that embraced it and supported it. So September to May, we do a cantata, and we also provide the choir for the services that sings the service music, and we do a motet early in the service between the two readings. Typically in an Anglican church, you'd have a mot you would, in between the Old Testament and New Testament readings, you would have a psalm that is sung responsively or read responsively. Instead, we do a motet, mm -hmm. usually an a cappella motet, that is somehow connected to the readings of the day. And then also before communion, we do a communion motet. 
Um, I might be going off on a tangent here. Well, I mean, I think it just shows how the music is so connected to the church here and how Emmanuel music is ingrained in this, in mm. this worship. You know, they often say that we have many different types of parishioners that come to Emmanuel Church. Some that came for the sermon but stayed for the music. Uh-huh. And some that came for the music and then were exposed to Pam Wurtz's preaching and stayed for that. And I think, and then there are some people that show up just in time for the cantata. You know, I think, um, what is it Pam says? Believing is not a condition, a condition for belonging. That's beautiful, yeah. That, you know, the idea of welcoming people wherever they are on their, on their spiritual or musical journey, mm-hmm. that for them just to experience this music is a, a pretty poignant thing. Yeah. Over the years, I feel the cantatas continue to have this deeply embedded place in the Emmanuel music tradition, mm-hmm. but it has expanded a little bit. Um, we do have this focus on Bach, but from the beginning, there's been other composers performed. Um, how does that play into what we do here? Over the years, I mean, Craig used to always say, I do the music I love, mm. and whoever comes after me will do the music they love. Yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of my musical affinities line up with Craig, and probably that's because I feel like I, you know, he was maybe an unknowing mentor to me. <laughs> uh, but I, part of our mission is to focus on the music of Bach and Bach's tentacles, as it were. Yeah. Which are, are broad. I mean, talk about casting a wide tent in a wide web. I can't think of a composer. <laughs> so in that way, it's incredibly liberating. I mean, there's really not much I could do that is not somehow connected to Bach. Because um, everybody's inspired by him. Uh, but one of the things that we're interested in, I'm personally interested in, the organization is interested in, is how we collaborate with other partner organizations, mm. um, new, our new initiatives for diversity, equity, inclusion, access, and what that looks like. Um, and also the sort of dramatic side of Bach and how that influences other composers. Yeah. And what I mean by that is we, and Craig started this, this long tradition of staged or semi-staged works. I mean, I think most people know that Craig had this collaboration with Peter Sellers and he did all the Mozart's Da Ponte operas. Mm. Staged them, filled them, filmed them. Um, I sort of picked up that mantle and have done, we've done some collaborations um, with Urbanity Dance. We've done stuff at Tanglewood. We did Harbison's Great Gatsby. I've done a few more Mozart operas, Stravinsky Rex Progress. Um, the Britain Beggars Opera, which we did fully staged at Longy. So this idea of how to make this, these works come alive that are either were meant for the stage or maybe weren't meant for the stage, but we choose to stage them. I think of our two years ago, we filmed the handle La Resurrezione in yeah. our sanctuary during COVID as a way to keep our work alive, enabling others to see it everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's on YouTube, listener, if you want to check oh, it yeah. out. Oh, yeah. It's still there, yeah. yeah. And we did a, a Britain Chamber Festival that was fully staged mm-hmm. as well. So I think um, 
You know, I think about going back to Bach, when Bach was basically finished writing cantatas on a weekly basis. It was after his first three years in Leipzig, mm -hmm. and for a number of reasons, whether it was his disenchantment with the church politics or with the musicians he was getting. We, I'm not a musical scholar in that way. I'm not a musicologist. And Christoph Wolf, of course, could talk to that um, with much more knowledge than I can. But he turned to his work with the Collegium Musicum, which was a group of students, and he did all these, he called them musica per drama, or drama per musica. Mm -hmm. And they were secular cantatas. Yeah. Mostly to... Greek mythological themes. Yeah, like increasing connection to opera there. Exactly. So, you know, we don't know what Bach would have been like as an opera composer. We can make assumptions based on some of these secular works he did. I mean, when we look at the passions, there's certainly a heightened sense of drama and a level of dramatic artistry and nuance that would rival any Baroque opera composer. So... That's sort of where I got my motivation and inspiration to do dramatic and staged works yeah, with the manual one music. Of, one of the many tentacles. Yeah. And then to talk more about this tentacle as it relates to the uh, exploring other composers, mm -hmm. especially contemporary ones. I mean, we've had, a, of course, this long, long relationship with John Harbison, both, uh, both as a sort of the de facto, our de facto composer in residence and also as principal guest conductor. I mean, I think I've probably conducted 90% of his choral works mm -hmm. with the Emanuel Choir, most of which he wrote for the Emanuel Choir. Um, we've, of course, done his opera, The Great Gatsby, with Venice Fifth Symphony. We, I mean, the list goes on and on. And now we're in the middle of this new initiative of this long commissioning project of Emanuel Motets. And the idea behind this is five composers a year that are contemporary composers of a broad broad backgrounds, mm -hmm. um, to write a three-minute motet for a specific liturgical season that will perform in the service, but then also as a prelude to the cantata and finding a way that these contemporary composers can make the connection to a Bach cantata that was composed over 300 years ago. Yeah. So we did five last year. We'll do five this year. And my hope is that this is a a, a, I mean, at least a five-year project, but then I hope will continue in perpetuity. Yeah, this is like a beautiful example of like engaging with the work of Bach and bringing it into the modern era and the living laboratory. Mm -hmm. um, how did you guys come up with that kind of language to pretty much explain what we've always been doing? Well, <laughs> this might be slightly controversial, but I have often felt that Bach doesn't... Bach has its own genre, in a way. <laughs> yes, in, he fits very neatly within our conventional, conventional idea of what the Baroque mm -hmm. era of music history mm -hmm. is. Um, and yet he manages to break so many Baroque compositional rules and molds. And... I've always thought that Bach is of his own time. He's his own genre. And in recent years, I feel like the prevailing number of performances of Bach have been done by period orchestras on 
period instruments. Mm -hmm. And of course, we're a modern instrument ensemble. Yeah, that's something that from the beginning set us apart. From the beginning. I mean, and much of it is purely logistics and practical. I mean, especially when Craig started, there was no way you were going to have a period orchestra. That, that, that movement had just barely begun in the 70s. Even now, we could not, even if we chose to, which we wouldn't, we could not staff a period orchestra every week to do cantatas, especially as it relates to woodwinds, number one. Number two, we don't just do Baroque music here. Yeah. Um, and so we have an ensemble of modern players that are what I would call historically informed in the style of Bach, knowing what those instruments were capable of, what are the stylistic, um, what is stylistically appropriate or not, mm -hmm. and then kind of taking all that information and throwing it out the window <laughs> and engaging in what the text and the music are telling you to do. And how that might change from week to week and how that changes with the people you're with, how um, you're going to play something different for a certain singer than you will another singer, mm -hmm. depending on the size ensemble you have. This is not, a, the ensemble changes from week to week. The playing style can change from week to week. It's the sort of chameleon-like nature of the ensemble yeah. is one of the things that at times is a challenge, but is something that I really enjoy. And I feel like box music does, is not only the domain of the historically informed and period performance movement. Mm. And I want to make sure that it's the, especially these cantatas are not museum pieces. Yeah. But these are, I mean, when it's always amazing to me how you can be looking at a text that box set, like say by Picander, from, say, 1723 or 1724, and here, 300 years, almost 300 years later, it's eerily appropriate to our time. Mm -hmm. And how this is not a museum piece, but it's a living document that's changing. Yeah. And that we're grappling with. And then also some of these texts can be inflammatory, can be uncomfortable. I mean, I'm sure Pam Delal talked to me. Pam and I have all these great conversations about this, but we talk about how sometimes the text is at complete odds with the music, and intentionally so, how sometimes it's supposed to make you feel uncomfortable. Yeah. No, and that's supposed part to make of, you squirm a little bit, and that's the point. That that's the point. Yeah, that's Bach writing for his audience. Mm -hmm. What does he want to make them feel that day with those readings? Yeah. And then how do we as performers want to make them feel? Yeah. And the other thing I'll say about I, to me. Bach is the most, what I would say, resilient of all composers. And what I mean by that is that his music can bear almost any interpretation mm -hmm. and still have the artistic and musical integrity of Bach. That it's not something that needs a pristine interpretation. It needs an interpretation that is honest. Yeah. And that honesty and earnestness is going to change from week to week. It's going to change depending on the zeitgeist. It's going to change what's happening in the cultural and political world. There's not, so that's why I feel like there's not a right way to do it. Yeah. That one can capture in a recording on the perfect instruments. Mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of like us as human beings. <laughs> yeah, and I think 
our organization is like really this giving the space to explore that. What does it sound like to us right now or to me in this moment? And what does it sound like? Under-rehearsed. <laughs> I mean, I can only imagine what it sounded like when Bach was doing this stuff. I mean, we don't know. I wish I knew the level at which. I mean, we knew he had, in his second year in Leipzig, had this incredible flute player. Mm -hmm. But how good was the St. Thomas Boy Choir? Yeah. How precise were they? And, you know, they probably had just as much or less rehearsal time exactly. than we did. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good thought. When people are trying to do it exactly as they would have done it, you know, nobody well, thinks to do yeah. it. Yeah, and I think what's important is that there's the human side of it can never be lost. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, of course, always strive for, you know, the, the best performance and articulation and everything is possible. But in the end, there has to be a little bit of human nature and grit and the flaws that are inherent in us as individuals that is present in it. Yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, it seems like in this kind of transitional period of Emmanuel Music coming out of the pandemic, um, there's been a real effort to focus in on our um, study of and performance of Bach and tying that in. Um, how would you describe coming to that realization that Bach really is at the core and and why is Bach so important that it should be? Well, I mean, there's there's the organizational history. Mm -hmm. that's Bach was the genesis of the founding of Emmanuel Music. At its core, that's who we are. It is, Bach is our vernacular. It's the language we speak. It's what allows us you know, this year we'll be doing the Christmas Oratory. Last year we did St. John Passion. Each year we do a Bach major work. Mm -hmm. And I feel like one of the things that Emmanuel does so well are these masterworks of Bach because these masterworks are born from cantatas. Mm -hmm. And they're and for us, they're born from this weekly dialogue we have with the music. It's going to be very different. And I'm not saying different in a way, putting no value on it, but a different experience for Emmanuel musicians to approach a St. John Passion or a St. Matthew or a B minor or a Christmas Oratorio, having performed all the cantatas. Entrenched in this language. As opposed to another musical organization that does amazing work and is going to do a St. John Passion. It's a different experience than an organization that is, in, as you say, entrenched in this weekly dialogue. So I think, to me, that's the core of Bach, that we're, I feel like we have a, we have such an intimate relationship with Bach's music that mm -hmm. I feel like it en enables us to approach it at a different level. Um, and again, I think that Bach's music is not only timeless, but it's of its time and it's almost of any time. Yeah. It has this, it can be applicable to any generation yeah. and any zeitgeist and any thing that's happening in culture. I mean, I remember the beginning of the pandemic as I was looking at some of these texts and it was just incredible how appropriate they were and how this music spoke to us in a way that I approached it in a completely different way because of what was happening at the time. Mm -hmm.
Yeah. And, you know, art makes you do that. Yeah. Good art. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm wondering, you mentioned the Christmas Oratorio mm -hmm. that is going to be in our 2022-23 season. Um, we've been talking a lot about our past and our beginnings. What are we going to do in this new season? And, you know, how does that relate to our core? Yeah. Well, I'm incredibly excited, especially about our opening concert. It's called This Love Between Us. Um, there's a incredibly talented young um Indian-American composer out on the West Coast named Rina Eshmael. She's currently the composer in residence with the LA Master Chorale. And she's a soprano trained in the singing of Bach and um, has a deep affinity and understanding of the music of Bach. And she's also a musician trained in non-Western music. Mm -hmm. And she took the orchestration of Bach's Magnificat. Um, so three trumpets, timpani, two flutes, three oboes, strings, continuo group, um, and choir, and wrote her own piece called This Love Between Us, which explores the seven different religions that are present in India. Hmm. It's a seven-movement work. And so she takes this orchestration of the Bach Magnificat and enhances it by adding in sitar and tabla. Yeah. It's about a 40-minute work, has not been, it'll, this will be its sort of New England premiere. Exciting. Um, so the whole theme of that is the idea of unity, neighborly love. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily, I mean, yes, love of God, but I've decided to focus on this idea of love of one another. Yeah. And how do we, what does that mean for all of us in terms of tolerance and embracing different ideas yeah um and so along with my colleague pamela dalal who's now the director of the bach institute the two of us assembled a composite cantata taking different movements from bach cantatas to open the concert so it'll be about a 25 minute cantata that has seven movements from seven different bach cantatas that mirrors the same ideas that are in the seven movement work of Rina Ishmael. Oh, I love that. And they're all, again, this idea of the love between us, the neighborly love, the idea of unity and tolerance. So that's our first concert. And it'll be the first time, um, first time I've worked with sitar or tabla, especially at this level. Yeah. Um, and the first time, we, to my knowledge, we will have had these non-Western instruments at Emmanuel. So um, it should be... A wonderful opportunity and exciting for us. Yeah. Um, and then our second major concert is, like you said, the Christmas Oratorium. This will be the third time during my tenure that we've done it. Um, and, you know, it's interesting that here in America, if you asked anybody what's the classical music holiday tradition, the answer would probably be the Mas Handel Messiah. Oh, I was going to say the Nutcracker. <laughs> oh, or the Nutcracker, sure, yeah. You know, but of course, in Europe, that's not the case. Christmas Oratorio is much more prevalent. Ah, interesting. Um, and so, it's you know, one could say we present this as an alternative to the, the Messiah. Um, but also, the Christmas Oratorio is an interesting piece in that it, Bach never, as far as we know, intended all six cantatas of the Christmas Oratorio to be performed in one sitting. Mm. In Bach's time in Leipzig, the Christmas Oratorio was sort of assembled after the fact in that it was for the 
six feast days of Christmas. Yeah. Um, that spanned the 12 days of Christmas. So we had Christmas Day, the second day of Christmas, the third day of Christmas, the Feast of St. Stephen, the Circumcision, and then the Epiphany, mm. the six feast days of Christmas. Um, and so, but in modern times, we've assembled this Christmas oratorio. And this kind of tells the, the whole story. Tells this, which is a beautiful and sometimes challenging journey from Christmas to Epiphany. It takes the joy of Christmas and then the sort of almost the the letdown or the hangover after the birth. And now the hard work begins. Absolutely. Um, and one of the things about the Christmas oratory that I've always loved is that um, Bach incorporates the Passion Chorale. And it's this idea of looking at the nativity through the lens of the passion. Yeah. Of what's to come. Yeah, he's not looking at this thing as an artifact. He's using his interpretation of someone who perhaps exactly. knows what's going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So this will be our third time doing it. And then, so in the spring, um, you know, I talked earlier about our my commitment to putting works on stage, some that were intended and maybe others that weren't necessarily originally intended to be on stage. Mm -hmm. Um when the pandemic hit, we were in the midst of this Britain Chamber series that I had envisioned being a three-year series that got cut short to two years. Mm -hmm. And there were three big vocal orchestral solo works that we didn't get to perform. The Britain, the Serenade for Tenor, Horn, and Strings, a cantata for mezzo-soprano called Phaedra based on Greek mythological themes, and then a stunning soprano song cycle called Les Illuminations, which is based on the po poetry of this French romantic poet, Rimbaud. And uh, Les Illuminations, incidentally, had later, after Britain died, was choreographed. Mm. And that gave me the idea to collaborate with Urbanity Dance and choreographer, stage director, Shura Barishnikov to stage choreograph these three works for three soloists, vocal soloists and orchestra and filling in between the three works with some, I'm calling it instrumental intermezzi that are yet to be determined as sort of transition in between these three works. Yeah. Um, the Serenade has this incredible nocturnal poetry of a wide range of English poets. Yeah. Um, Phaedra is, like I mentioned, incredibly dramatic and somewhat disturbing mythological story. And then Les Illuminations, which repeats this phrase over and over about this savage parade, and it presents this sort of erotic, slightly um, messy side of love, shall we say. Sort of bookending our first concert of the love between us and exploring these two different sides of love. And I'm really excited to be able to collaborate again with Urbanity Dance. So it'll be great to get with them again. And Shura Barishnikov, who was set to be our choreographer when we were going to do a staged St. John Passion, and our plans had to change because of the pandemic. It'd be great to have her, who's worked with Boston Lyric Opera, is on faculty at Brown University, and is um, great working with singers and finding the sort of 
abstract way in which dance um, is in dialogue with music. Oh my goodness. I'm so excited for this season. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Wow. Um, and yeah, to see the Emmanuel Ensemble can work with the dancers is going to be unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned kind of the book ending themes. Mm -hmm. um, I'm wondering overall this season with weekly cantatas and these major concerts and even Bach Institute, Lindsay Chapel, everything we do here. Um, would you say that there's an overarching theme? Without getting too theological here, one of the things, I'm very much influenced by the sermons that our rector gives. And one of the, having heard enough of them now, one of the things that she always comes back to is, and it may seem simple, but the idea of love without limitations or love without conditions. Mm. There's um, the first chorale to St. John Passion is O Grosse Leap, um, Leap ona ala masa. O Great Love, O Unmeasurable Love. Mm. Love without conditions. And that's actually the name of the cantata. I gave that title to the cantata, the composite cantata. And throughout everything we do, that always comes back to me. I mean, just this sort of ministry, as it were, of doing the cantatas, regardless of one's, anyone's beliefs, that alone is this measure of, it's unconditional, unmeasurable love. I mean, one among our musicians, if nothing else, because of what they give to this organization. Um, they all three concerts, especially even the Christmas Oratorio, which is, you know, to me is this incredible love story. Yeah. Um, so this overarching thing of love beyond all measure, I guess is the way I'd see it. It's and, beautiful. Yeah. And I think it's something that is uh, needed and sometimes missing. Mm. And I think we're very lucky. I feel incredibly lucky that this is, <laughs> I get paid to do this. <laughs> it's incredible. This is, you know. Yeah. It's important work and it's work that's outrageously rewarding. But sometimes I feel guilty how rewarding it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's wonderful. And you are so rewarding to this organization, you know. Oh, well. Thanks. You know, you surround yourself with wonderful people and that's what happens. <laughs> yeah. Just to finish out, selfishly, I find it hard to describe this organization. Um, sometimes I'll say like a Bach performance ensemble, but that doesn't feel like it really hits at it. How would you describe Emmanuel Music? Boy, I've been trying to work on the elevator pitch for what Emmanuel Music is for 12 years. And I wish there was a succinct way to do it because, as you said, there's so much that we do. And, um, you know, there's the cantatas, the evening concerts, the chamber series, the Lindsay Chapel series, this Motet commissioning project. There's so much of what Emmanuel Music does. Um, there's a wonderful sense of almost eccentricity in the work that we do. Mm -hmm. And 
the way I feel like much of what we do has this interesting bifurcated result in that it reaches people who have an incredibly specific love of Bach, but it also reaches those on the margins mm. that kind of like, I mean, one of the things I think the church does well, and I apologize if I'm getting too churchy on anybody here, but, and it's not even about religion with them. It's about ministering to those on the margins mm -hmm. and ministering to the, finding the way that those without a home can find a home. Yeah. And I feel like Emmanuel is the musical home for so many musicians in Boston. This is their place. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I get a call from a musician that says, hey, what's happening at Emmanuel this weekend? I just got another job that I'd like to take unless there's something happening at Emmanuel. And that's mm -hmm. where I want to be. So there's a, and I know I'm, probably not answering your question incredibly clear other than to say that we create a home for musicians and we create a home for music lovers. Yeah. Um, in a way that I think is unique, that is thoughtful, that is collaborative. Yeah. And it's a, there's this, this real sense of community here. And not just community with musicians, but among musicians and our audience. I think one of the things that a lot of people that come to Emmanuel Music for concerts recognize is I've seen all those people up on stage in different concerts in Boston. But when I come to Emmanuel Music, when the concert's over, I get to go up and talk to them mm -hmm. and communicate with them. And I feel like I'm part of this musical community. Yeah. So, as I said, I'm not good at the elevator pitch because unless we were going to the 100th floor. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I feel the same way. I mean, I really think it's about the community. It's about the engagement with the music and commitment to Bach and all of that. Mm -hmm. so. You know, just an anecdotal story. I remember it was 1998 and it was the first time I'd been asked to sing a cantata, a solo in the cantatas. Okay. And I had, <clears throat> when I looked at the roster of tenors that day, I saw that like three of, at the time, my tenor idols that I looked up to that were 10, 15 years older than me that were established in the Boston musical community were singing, including Bill Height, who was to me at that point in my life was that I wanted to be Bill Height. <laughs> and I thought, why did they ask me, why am I singing the solo when Bill's here? And I remember being so nervous and sitting, standing in the choir, singing the opening chorus, getting ready to sing my aria. And I left the choir to walk around to sing. And Bill put his arm around me and said, knock him down. <laughs> and it was at that moment that I was like, wait a second. This is a real, I mean, all these people that are behind me that I was nervous about singing in front of are there to support me. Yeah. And it was that embracing musical community that still, I mean, my first solo, I was, what, 23 years old. That feeling is what I think I remember most about Emmanuel Music and hope 
that we impart upon others and that the ensemble still embraces. That's really, really beautiful. And yeah, thank you, Ryan, for everything. Thank you, Claudia. This has been a great conversation. And, you know, I hope part of this podcast can be exposing everyone to the conversations and bringing you in and getting to know us here. So. Well, thanks for, thanks for talking and thanks for doing this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Bach Lab is brought to you by Emmanuel Music in Boston. The music you heard in the introduction and throughout this episode is from Bach Cantata BWV 127, recorded live at Emmanuel Music on February 27, 2022, and engineered by Seth Torres. I'm Claudia Dorian, host and producer of this podcast. Visit emmanuelmusic.org to learn more about us and explore our exciting 53rd season. Thanks for listening.